Well, good morning, church. Thank you for being here, and William, thank you for centering our thoughts around communion, Jim, our, our time of singing, and Mark, our, our prayer before the throne. And thank you for the way that you have sung out and worshipped the Father thus far in our time together. We are in the middle of a series of lessons called Worship Matters. And in the very first lesson, we looked at the one who is worthy of our worship, who we gather together every week as a body of Christ and worship, and why he is worthy. And then last week, we took kind of a historical look through the Old Testament and some history that is recorded to get a glimpse of what Old Testament worship was like. And it was kind of a fast-moving 25 to 30 minutes as we went through a lot of different things that we see in the Old Testament. And I want to recap that for you very briefly um, today so that you'll have a kind of a background of where this next lesson's coming from because now we're looking at kind of the history of early Christian worship. Uh, we're looking into Scripture and we're looking into history and some of the things that, were, that are recorded in the first and second centuries uh, as well. Uh, so I'm going to go very quickly again this morning. Note takers are not going to like me. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of information on the screen. I'm going to have a lot of scriptures referenced on the screen. I will be honest with you, you probably won't have time to write them all down. Uh, if you'd like an email copy of the PowerPoint, I can do that. If you want a physical hard copy of it, I can do that as well. Uh, also, remember these go on our website, so you can go back and listen to them. Pause them, stop, and write those verses down as well. But we'll go very quickly, uh, particularly when we get into the New Testament early Christian worship. But here's what we talked about last week. Sin in the Garden of Eden changed things. Adam and Eve lived unhindered in the garden. Things were great, but then sin entered the picture. And in that Garden of Eden, there were no holy of holies, no altars, no priests, nothing that inhibited the worship and the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. And, and when sin enters the picture, it changed things. We then read the history through Genesis. We get into the book of Exodus. And the Israelites are, are in captivity, in Egyptian bondage. They come out of this Egyptian bondage, and worship centers around the tabernacle. God gave them very specific instructions for the tabernacle, and most of the worship in this tabernacle that we know about, that we have information on, was centered around the sacrifices. Uh, sometime later, Solomon builds the temple. Temple worship follows where sacrifices uh, in praising God with singing and instruments were the main focus. Uh, the sacrifices continued. It continued through the Levitical priesthood. Uh, praising God with singing, praising God with the instrument uh, was the focus of the tabernacle. And then the temple's destroyed as they are exiled in Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. And as the temple's being rebuilt, synagogue worship develops. So synagogue worship follows the, uh, the temple worship. And the synagogue worship is focused on the reading of the law and singing without instruments uh, became the normal. Um, and we talked all about the reasons last week. If you go back and listen to that lesson or if you want some notes on that, I can get it to you. But multiple reasons why the rabbis of that day uh, took the instrument out of the synagogue. If you recall, synagogue worship was very simple. It was also very long. It consisted of reading of the law, reading of prophets, uh, and then there was an exposition of that. Uh, there was prayer, there was circumcision, ceremonial washings, and again, no instruments. 
Uh, and those are the things that we talked about a lot last week. Now, we ended last week by looking at Jesus in the synagogues. And there are some interesting things about Jesus in the synagogues. First of all, all four Gospels record Jesus on a regular basis being in the synagogue. Now, that is probably first and foremost because he lived under the old law. When Jesus was on earth, the old law was still the, the covenant of, of choice. It was the covenant that God was expecting his people to live under. And Jesus lived under that. But if you remember from Luke chapter 4 last week, he gets invited to speak at the synagogue one day. And he starts to teach them about himself being the fulfillment of the law. And, and they weren't very thrilled with that. And of course they ran him out uh, and looked to kill him after that. So that's kind of a, a recap of some of the things we talked about last week. And now we're going to get into early Christian worship and Jewish influence. I think it's easy for us to say that we are New Covenant Christians, that we are New Testament Christians. Uh, we have heard all of our lives that we do things by the New Testament. Our worship's influenced by the New Testament. It's guided by the New Testament. And that is not a, an inappropriate way to look at Scripture. Uh, that is certainly who we are. It's certainly our history. But one thing that we will miss if we're not careful is how closely Jewish synagogue worship and early Christian worship were tied together. And a lot of the things that we see the early church doing in the book of Acts and things we do see the early church doing even in the epistles later are, are heavily influenced by some of the things that were taking place in the synagogues and we're going to show you I'm going to show you a few of those things this morning for example when you get to the day of Pentecost after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 we find that in verse 46 the NIV says that they met daily where in the temple courts now the NIV is one of the only translations that actually uses the word courts there uh, it's not the only one but but it's, it's in the minority uh, the majority of translations actually just say they met daily in the temple. Uh, so whatever the correct rendering of that is, they would gather either in the temple or around the temple courts daily as they were worshiping. Now remember, who were the first Christians? Jews or Gentiles? They were Jews. And they were Jews who had grown up in the Jewish way of faith, grew up in the Jewish way of thinking, and it is going to be hard for them and nearly impossible for them to make a complete break from their upbringing. So they continue to meet in the temple or in the temple courts daily. In Acts chapter 3 verse 1, we find that Peter and John, New Testament apostles, who preached and established churches, who went and, and taught to people about Jesus, we see them in Acts chapter 3 going to the temple at the appointed prayer time. So Peter and John did not even abandon some of the ideas that we see early on in synagogue worship. In Acts chapter 5, verse 21, they taught in the temple after their arrest and release. Uh, the apostles are arrested. They're chastised. They're told they can't teach in this name. What do they do? They go back into the temple and they preach Jesus. Now, as you think about this for a minute, what you find is that when they are gathered around the temple courts, when they are among Jews who are continuing to worship in the old law and the old pattern, what they are focusing on is the difference between the two, and the difference is a person. 
Who is that person? It's Jesus. So everything we see them doing around the temple and the temple courts is something about Christ. It's something about Jesus. We continue on in in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. The scripture says that every day they taught in two places. They taught in the temple and they taught in homes. So they did not just quickly abandon the temple and temple courts. They didn't quickly abandon the synagogues, and we're going to see that here in a few moments. Now, let's talk about the Apostle Paul for a minute and what, what I'll call, for lack of a better phrase, Jewish traditions. We know that there were some holy days in Jewish worship, uh, Passover, Sabbath, various kind of feasts. We also know that they had a, a ceremonial way in which they purified themselves before they entered the temple. Uh, and, and they had other uh, things that they would, they would look at. They had ideas about meat that was sacrificed to idols, for example. Well, in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, Paul is going to go into the temple. And he does not teach them at that particular moment in time that there is no purpose in this ceremonial purification. Matter of fact, Acts 21, 26, well after the day of Pentecost, we find Paul following the purification instructions. He did not just abandon it, but he followed them as he gets ready to head in the temple. And then in Acts 22, verse 17, he is actually at the temple. He is praying, and as he's praying at the temple at the appointed time that they had for prayer, he receives a vision warning that these people aren't going to listen to him, so he needs to move on. Now, again, what was Paul's purpose being at the temple? It was to preach Jesus. But notice, when he went to preach Jesus, he still did the things that the Jewish individuals would have expected him to do in order to come into the temple. Another example, in Acts 24, 11 and 12, Paul is kind of on trial here, and he has to defend himself. And he defends himself in the temple... And if you read through that section of Scripture, he admits his belief in the law. He admits his belief in the prophets. He even states as part of his argument, as part of his defense, that when he entered the temple, he was ceremonial, uh, ceremonially clean. Meaning, again, he went through that purification rite that the Jews were so focused on. And then, in 1 Corinthians 9, well after Pentecost, now, now remember the epistles were written anywhere between 25 to 45, 50 years after the day of Pentecost and after the establishment of the church. And here when he writes to the Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 to 23, he makes an unusual statement. He He said, I became all things to all people. And what was his purpose? It was to win some. And if you go and flesh that verse out and read through that verse, he says, To the Jew, I became like what? A Jew. And to the Gentile, I became like what? A Gentile. Meaning that he embraced the the Jewish history. Or he embraced those that had no Jewish history because they were Gentiles. And his goal, his objective, was to win some for Christ. So... Paul, even though the Old Covenant has been fulfilled, it's done away with, we're no longer worshiping under the Old Covenant, 
Paul still keeps close ties trying to win some of those who are stuck in that way of worship, trying to win some of those to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, both groups worshipped the same God, at least in the father aspect. The major difference, of course, was the viewpoint of Jesus. Now, what about the Sabbath? Do we see anything in Scripture once the day of Pentecost has arrived, once the church is established, do we, see, do we see anything happening on the Sabbath? Because we know that in our way of thinking, the, the day that the body of Christ assembles is the first day of the week. But what we actually know when we look at the first century is they gathered much more often than that. When, when did they gather? Every day. And by the way, that would have included gathering on the Sabbath. So in Acts chapter 13, 13 to 15 on the Sabbath, Paul and his companions are listening to the reading of the law and the prophets, because that's what the synagogues did, and then they were invited to speak. Now, if you go back to history of what we talked about last week, you go back to last week's sermon, uh, and you look at Luke 4, when Jesus was in the synagogue, you see a pattern that was used in the synagogue and it was a pattern of reading the law, reading the Torah, reading the prophets, and then kind of expounding on that. And that's what Jesus did in Luke 4. And that was very much different, remember, from the temple, because the temple was run by the priest. And the only people who could do various religious things in the temple were those priests. In the synagogues, it was much more open. And as we said last week, any Jew of age could speak or read in the synagogue. Well, here in this passage of Scripture, Paul and his companions are in the synagogue and they're listening to the reading. And then they're invited to speak. And who do they speak about? They speak about Jesus. Again, that doesn't go over real well. But notice that they did not at that moment in time give up the habit of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. They were there on the Sabbath. They were listening to the Torah and they were invited to speak. In Acts chapter 14, verse 1, you see it again. Here, you see Paul and Barnabas. In, in chapter 13, his companions are not named. It's just plural companions. So Paul and some other folks went to the synagogue. In 14.1, they name him. Paul and Barnabas. They're in the synagogues. And if you read that verse, there's a little statement there. And it says, as was their custom. They were accustomed to going to the synagogue. And when the early church was established and worship was happening, it does not appear through text or through history that they immediately stopped going to the synagogue. Now, what happened and what changed again is the message they bring to it. They're bringing Jesus to the people who are worshiping and gathering at the synagogue. So in 14.1, they're in the synagogues as was their custom. Acts chapter 16, verse 13, we read about a lady named Lydia. Lydia was actually converted and heard the gospel and converted on a Sabbath as they are making their way to the synagogues. They come across Lydia, she hears the gospel, and she actually obeys on a Sabbath. And then in Acts 17, 2 and 3, we find that Paul, on a regular basis, reasons or teaches on three consecutive Sabbaths. And in this verse again, we see that this was his custom. 
So early Christian worship and teaching did not just abandon the past. It did not just abandon the synagogue. They go to the synagogue, they listen to the law and prophets, they don't dismiss the law and the prophets, but they're starting to bring Jesus. And when Paul's invited to speak, they're so impressed in Acts 17, they invite him back. And on three consecutive Sabbaths, he reasons with them and he teaches them about Jesus. Now what about early Christians in the synagogues? Outside of the apostles, outside of those who traveled with, with Peter, with John, with Paul, with Barnabas and others. Do we see any evidence of early Christians maintaining their appearance in the synagogue as Jewish Christians? Well, if you remember Acts chapter 9, Saul is going to Damascus. And what's he going to do? What's he going there for before he's converted? He's going there to arrest anyone that's in the way. All right, And the way meaning the church, the early establishment of, of Christian worship, those who belong to Jesus. And if you read through that text, he seeks letters to the synagogues so that if he finds anyone belonging to the way there, he can arrest them. Paul, Saul, before he becomes Paul, he did not like the idea of Christians mingling and mixing with Jewish individuals in the synagogues. And he is going to the synagogue in Damascus to see if there's anyone that is following Jesus. And if they are, he's going to arrest them. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, we know the story how he's blinded on the road, how he goes in and he spends a few days with the disciples. He's blinded for three days. His, his sight finally comes back. He gets up. He's baptized into Christ. He spends a few more days with the, the disciples there. And then when you get to verse 20 in this same chapter, after his conversion, where does he go to preach Jesus? In the synagogues. He preaches Jesus in the synagogues, which is fascinating to me. Because what you have is that Paul was headed to the synagogue to arrest Christians for basically interrupting Jewish worship. And to gathering there to talk about Jesus. And before the story's over, Paul is in the synagogue... And what's he doing? He's preaching Jesus. Fascinating how God works. Now, what about Jewish Christians and Jewish traditions? The early Christians were Jews. Before the message got to the Gentiles, if you read in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, there were staying there at the day of Pentecost, God-fearing Jews from all nations. And 3,000, roughly 3,000, were added to the number of the church on that particular day. 3,000 Jews or 3,000 Gentiles? 3,000 Jews. Now, they grew up in the law. They grew up reading the prophets. They grew up in synagogue worship. Their ancestors grew up in temple worship. They would have known about the tabernacle. And you would think, the way we have kind of interpreted Scripture over the years, you would think that they would have just abandoned all those things right away. Because none of those things any, any longer necessarily matter. Because we're under a new covenant, we have a new Savior, we have a new high priest, we have a new way to pay for our sins. We don't do it ourselves. we don't make a, a physical animal sacrifice, we have the Lamb of God who takes away our sin do that for us. But we've already seen in the book of Acts that various times they don't just give up that time in the synagogue. 
Well, what about Jewish traditions like special days, Passover, Sabbath, new moon festivals, some of the the, uh, offering festivals that they had? Well, when you study Romans 14, by this time, this again is, is 30 years after the establishment of the church, in Romans 14, you have some Jews in the church, but by this time, you also have who else in the church? You have Gentiles. And when Jews and Gentiles come together, they just get along perfectly, right? <laughs> no. Matter of fact, you know the first issue uh, that was resolved in Acts chapter 15 was the issue of circumcision. Because the Jewish believers said, you know, this is what we've done all of our lives. And we need to, you need to do this in order to be a part of this movement. So they went to the apostles and elders in Acts 15 and, and threw the scenario out. And they said, no, we don't think that's, that's necessary. And they write a letter back and said, here's what we want you to do. So there are some bumps in the road. There are some struggles. There are some issues. And one of the issues in the early church of Jews and Gentiles combined were what to do about these religious festivals and these holy days and the Sabbath that the Jews were accustomed to. And you know what Paul told them in Romans 14? He said, one person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another person considers every day what? The same. You know what Paul told them? He said, be convinced in your own mind what you believe about that. And don't sit in judgment of the others. There is plenty of historical records, writings from some of the early church historians in the late 1st, early 2nd century even, in the mid-first century, shortly after Pentecost even, who talks about some of those early Jewish Christians hanging on to their traditions and their, their faith from the past and observing things like Passover and observing things like Sabbath, going to the synagogues even though they were preaching Jesus, enjoying those new moon festivals. But the Gentiles, they didn't have any, any interest in doing that because that wasn't their past. And you can see in the book of Romans that could be an issue. How do, you, how do you unite this group of people who are so diverse? And Paul called it a disputable matter. And he said, don't judge each other on disputable matters. Each are to be convinced in their own mind about these days and not pass judgment on others. He also, by the way, said the same thing about meat versus vegetables. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16... He tells the church not to let other people judge them concerning these days. Now, in this context, you probably had more Gentiles who felt like they were being judged because they did not follow those old Jewish uh, traditions and feasts. And Paul says, don't let people judge you concerning those days. So in two different places, in the Roman letter and in the Colossian letter, Paul addresses some of these Jewish traditions. Now, as you get to worship... There are some similarities between Christian and Jewish worship early on. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we find the church devoted to four things. Number one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Were Jewish individuals devoted to teaching? Absolutely. What, what was their purpose when they gathered? They were to read from what? From the law and prophets. So this is, this is something that's not brand new to them. Uh, they also were devoted to prayer. That's not new. They're devoted to fellowship. Well, there's fellowship offerings in the old law, so that's not necessarily new. Here's the new one, breaking of bread, which is communion. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. This is a major difference 
in the early worship between the Jews and Christians. The major difference is communion. Now, in the synagogues, you had officers and attendants. In the early church, you have elders and deacons. Uh, some of them play similar, similar roles. Uh, as we read through some scripture last week, Jesus goes to the, temp- the temple uh, or, or the synagogue, and the attendant is the one that asks him to read or ask him if he wants to share something. So you had those that, that led in the synagogues. You have those that lead in New, early New Testament Christianity. What about church music? Well, if you remember, the early church chanted without the use of instruments. And that's the same as the synagogue. If you remember last week's lesson, the, the temple had elaborate singing, what we might even consider closer to our four-part harmony that we experience today, Uh, They had vocal choirs, highly trained people who sounded wonderful, and they praised God with elaborate instruments. But in the synagogue, for about six or eight different reasons, which I gave you last week, the, the rabbis took the instrument out of the synagogue. Now remember, God did not command synagogues to be built. The temple's destroyed. They're supposed to meet. They're supposed to be together. So they met. They started building these things we call synagogues. And the rabbis took the instruments out for multiple reasons. Culture was different. They were afraid to violate the Sabbath, as we talked about last week. Carrying your instrument or tuning your instrument would be a violation of Sabbath. It would be, quote, work. So they took those out for various reasons. And by the time Jesus enters the picture, the type of singing that is taking place in the synagogue is a chant. And we explained what chants were last week. Chants was not some monotonous four or five words repeated over and over and over. They chanted the Psalms. They chanted prayers. They chanted spiritual songs. Uh, The words were different. But they stayed kind of, as we talked about last week, they kind of stayed on that same note. It was very monotone. Uh, you You didn't have any kind of voice inflection. You didn't have low parts, high parts. You didn't have one person singing high and another person singing low. They were all just chanting kind of over and over again. Or not, excuse me, not over and over again, but they were chanting these psalms, these hymns, these spiritual songs, prayers, scripture. They were chanting them on the same note. And that's what the early church did early on. There is plenty of historical record talking about the chants of the first century church. Uh, It was very similar to what was in the synagogue. So synagogue singing, for lack of a better phrase, influenced early church singing. When the Apostle Paul writes the book of Ephesians many years after the establishment of the church, in Ephesians 5.19, the way he starts that out is that we are to speak to one another. This speaking to one another is probably an indication of what they have been doing through their chants. Because chanting was much more similar to speaking than what we would be accustomed to with singing. And then over in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, they're told to sing with gratitude in their heart. And the, word, the Greek word for singing there literally meant to chant or sing to the praise of another. To chant or sing to the praise of another. Now, chanting was not the only way you could sing during that day and time. But it was the way of the synagogue for about 450 to 500 years. And it was the way of the early church, at least in its early inception, when Jews were predominantly those in the early church. Now, it changes, which we'll see in a little bit. Now, what are some major early differences? The The big difference early 
is the addition of communion. William talked about Matthew 26 this morning where Jesus institutes it in the upper room. He's reclining at the table. He introduces it. 1 Corinthians 11, we see a command. We see an issue. In Acts chapter 2, they're devoted to the breaking of bread, which is communion. On Act, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, they came together on the first day of the week to break bread. That's communion as well. What probably happened, according to history and looking at the text and interpreting the text, what probably happened is they met every day. And when they met on the Sabbath, some of them might have met in the synagogues to talk about Jesus. They didn't participate in communion. But on the first day of the week, they participated in communion. Now, one historical note. When was the first day of the week for the Jews? Well, for us, when, did it, when, did, when, when does the first day of the week start? It starts at midnight on Saturday night, Sunday morning, right? For them, their days went how? Sunset to sunset. Okay, so as we look at sunset to sunset, uh, they could have done that any time between, uh, between that time period. Uh, they could have taken communion. Now, there becomes a communion problem, and I want you to turn to this passage with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to turn and actually see this one with me. And I know I've gone really fast through a lot of stuff. I told you note takers aren't going to be happy with me. Uh, next week we start getting into more application. Last two weeks are our history and background. Now we're going to get an application next week. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see a problem. The Lord's Supper becomes something that is actually dividing them instead of uniting them. If there's any one thing that, that unites the body of Christ, it's when we gather around communion. Because when we gather around communion, all of our sins have been forgiven. And it doesn't matter if, if I've committed 100 and you've committed 5. We're all forgiven. We all stand before God in purity. We all have had the blood of Jesus applied to our life if we're followers of his. And when we gather around the table, there's an incredible sense of unity here. But what was happening then is that they would take a regular common meal called the agape meal or the love feast. And they would, they would bring things to this meal as an offering. And they would have, they would have a lot of food. They would, they would have this food. They would make these offerings. They, they would enjoy this time of fellowship. And in the middle of that agape meal or that love feast, they would try to squeeze communion in. And it became very disruptive it became very chaotic. It became a me-first situation. People were being left out. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private supper. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then in verse 23, he talks about the communion. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, when he given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. As they were abusing this love feast and, and kind of incorporating communion into it, there was no distinguishable difference between the two, and there was a lot of division over it. And Paul said, enough. What you have to be focused on is this particular feast, what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, what Jesus instituted in Matthew chapter 26. And that became something that they began to separate from that common meal. The common meal wasn't bad. Paul doesn't tell them they can't ever have common meals together. He says you need to focus on communion. You need to focus on the body of Jesus, the, the blood of Jesus. And, and later in our application section of this series, we're going to look a little bit more closely at communion. Now, as we get ready to wrap up, <clears throat> there was eventually a time where Jewish and Gentile believers separated. Early on, synagogue worship had a great influence because those Christians were Jews. Early on, those special days had meanings to the Jews because that was their history, that was their custom. But for several reasons, there eventually became a, a kind of a split uh, in the Jewish and Gentile believers. The Christians started to meet in other places beyond the temple courts and the synagogues. Here are some uh, reasons very quickly. Number one, Jewish Christians grew in understanding of Jesus and his fulfillment of the law. They began to understand as more things are written, more things are circulated, as teachings starting to happen with the apostles, they, they start to understand that Jesus fulfilled the law and we are a separate people. And, and it is okay to remove ourselves from that past and from that history and from that tradition. They also learned from Peter's words, they were the royal priesthood now. You didn't have to go through the priest of the temple any longer. You didn't have to go through the Levitical priesthood as the old law prescribed, but they started to understand that they are the royal priesthood. A big difference is their worship started to include the praise not only of the Father, but the praise of Jesus as well. We just came off an exhaustive study of the book of Revelation. Multiple times in the book of Revelation do we not only see the Father being worshipped, but who else do we see being worshipped? Jesus. And the early Jewish Christians eventually learned that Jesus is a part of who they praise and who they worship. The words of the apostles became equal to the prophets. These letters that now we have in nice book form, many of them were written between 25 and 50 years after the establishment of the day of Pentecost, after the church was established. They did not have book, chapter, and verse. When Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God, what scripture is he referring to? He's referring to the old law. But as this becomes circulated around verbally and passing these letters to one another, they began to accept the words of the apostles, written and verbal, as equal to the prophets. And then here's a big one. The unbelieving Jews finally got tired of them. And they ran them out of the synagogues. They did not welcome them any longer. You had more Gentile converts. And as you have more Gentile converts, they don't have the history. They don't have the tradition. Uh, they bring Greek culture in. And Greek culture starts to influence their singing. Chants start to slowly in the history of the church change into something different uh, and continues to evolve even today. And then, finally, there's more informal worship, but there is some order to it. Last passage of Scripture I want you to turn to is 1 Corinthians 14. We were over in 11. Now you just have to go to 14. 
and it's, it's really fascinating to me because as you, as you look in the text, it would be great if you could turn to a lot of book, chapter, and verse and say, here's what worship looked like. Here's what, when they gathered on the first day of the week, it looks like. Now, we get snippets of it. We, we get that they sang or chanted. We get that they prayed. We get that they, they experienced communion. We get that they laid by in store, they, they, they gave. We, we get that they taught, they preached. We get those things in snippets. But one of the only pictures of a first century gathering for worship is found in 1 Corinthians. And notice in 14, it's informal, but it's very chaotic. Now, remember also, the gifts of the Spirit are in play now. The miraculous gifts of the Spirit. So these believers could speak in tongues. They could miraculously prophesy. Somebody could interpret from, script, uh, from the tongue speaker. And here's what we find in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, what, sh what then shall we say? When you come together, each one of you has a hymn. A lot of history shows that that was actually... Uh, very impromptu type singing where anybody that's gathered at that time could start that. And some history shows that it might have even been solo type singing, believe it or not. But each one of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Now notice what Paul says. Everything may, must be done so the church may be built up. And then he gets into some, some order. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak. One at a time, someone must interpret if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then he gives the instruction, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. We'll talk about that passage later in applications. But what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians is that all of these things Paul says that are happening, speaking in tongues, interpreting, prophesying, all of those things are necessary and needed for that day and time. The miraculous gifts of the Spirit were still in existence. And he did not tell them to stop doing those things, but he said everything needs to be done in a decent and order fashion. If you look at verse 40, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I've heard all kinds of arguments throughout my life. I've read all kinds of arguments that this passage, verse 40, eliminates certain things that the church does or a church can do when it worships. That's not the context of the passage. The context of the passage is all of these things are necessary, just don't do it over top of each other. Literally what history shows is it was chaotic. And here's an example, here's a way that we would, we, we would illustrate it this morning. If Jim popped up right now and started singing, that'd be all right. But what if I kept preaching? And then what if Roy come up and he grabbed this microphone and said, I want to pray. Jim's singing, I'm preaching, Roy's praying. How chaotic would that be? Some of you would be singing. Some of you would probably have your heads bowed. And some of you would probably do the right thing and listen to me. <laughs> right? It'd be chaotic, wouldn't it? That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul says, don't do it that way. He doesn't eliminate things from them. 
He doesn't say you can't do these things. He's certainly not limiting something, that, that they, something else that they may be doing that we don't read about. He's simply saying do it with some order. Because God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. All right. So that's a lot of stuff. What I wanted you to see this morning, as we get into some applications for worship today, over the next five weeks, what I want you to see this morning is that the first Christians were Jews. They were heavily influenced by their past. Eventually, as the apostles' teaching spreads, as, as the letters circulate, as they are kicked out of the synagogues, uh, certainly uh, those things start to change. Uh, singing starts to change. But their early singing mimicked what was in the synagogue. Uh, it would be wrong for us to think that synagogue worship never influenced early Christian worship because it did. Even though they're no longer bound to what the synagogues were teaching or doing, even though they're under a new covenant, it still influenced them. We're going to talk now over the coming weeks and make some applications for the church in the 21st century based on the history of what we looked at the last two weeks and based on some other texts that we'll bring into play as we get in there. Again, like last week's sermon, this hasn't been about the gospel-saving power of Jesus. But you know as well as I do that Jesus died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for me so that we could have an incredible relationship with him so that we could be forgiven of sin. And if you've not been forgiven of the sin and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you need to do that today by making the confession that he is Lord and turning from that sin, repenting from it, and being buried in baptism for the forgiveness of that sin. You can do that this morning. We would love to celebrate your new birth this morning. Maybe you're here and you've already done that and there's something you need us to pray about. Our elders, our shepherds will pray for you. They'll pray over you. They'll lift you before the throne and encourage you uh, in the presence of God and the body of Christ. If you have any need today that we can help you with, give us that opportunity to help. Let's stand. Let's sing together.